Good morning, and Alan is going to open our class with prayer for us this morning. Thank you, dear God, for a wonderful Sabbath day, another day to get away and, and contemplate you and think about you. I pray for every person in here individually with concerns they have of family, friends, sick ones. Uh, we know you're the great healer of our mind and our bodies, and we ask for that today. Be with Tim as we talk about you. And the most important thing we can ever learn is more and more about you and the way you really are. Thank you very much in your name. Today we are doing lesson number two in our quarterly, The Wonder of Jesus. And the title this week is The Mystery of His Deity. And as we look at the Sabbath lesson, somebody read the memory text for us, please. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. And as a review from last week's lesson, so that somebody tell us why it was important that Jesus be fully God. Why is that so important? As a review. To answer all the accusations. Accusations about? God. God. Who... Those accusations were brought by Satan, and those accusations against God came through the pretext of of alleging equality with Christ. And if Christ was just a created being, number one, Satan would have had a a leg to stand on, so to speak. Number two, what would we have learned about God if Christ was a created being? And he was willing to sacrifice one of his favorites. Exactly. Exactly. We'd learn that God's arbitrary and plays favorites. We'd learn that God's willing to sacrifice creatures to protect himself. We'd learn that Christ is a cool being, loves us, but we wouldn't learn much about God, would we? No. Pardon? Would have been just an opinion. Yes. Yes. Exactly. All right. So somebody read the first paragraph for us in the Sabbath lesson there, called Starting Leaving the Historical. Leaving the historical overview, we come to the scriptures themselves. We want to see what they tell us about Jesus, whose life has commanded so much attention through the centuries. As we do so, we ought to keep in mind the crucial exchange between Jesus and his disciples at Caesarea Philippi. On hearing Peter's confession of him as the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus reminded him that this insight did not spring from human investigation, but was disclosed, quote, by my Father in heaven. Quote, flesh and blood, our own unaided human wisdom is inadequate in the presence of supreme of this supreme mystery of the ages. Do we believe this to be true? Do we believe that our own unaided, sin-filled, selfish human minds cannot, without God's aid, comprehend him, his character, and spiritual truth? Do we believe that? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Think about the implications then. What does that mean? We have to be able to comprehend it. You know, I believe it. That's true. Without his unaid, without his aid, our, our yeah, without his aid, our sin-filled minds can't comprehend him or his character. That he he assists us in that process. So, what is the implication then? There is an implication here. Well, all the people that don't have his assistance, that deny the Holy Spirit entrance into their life, don't understand God at all. Okay, I'm with you on that. That's true. Would it not also mean, though? That to the degree someone is speaking the truth about God, they are only doing so because the Holy Spirit has lightened their mind to do so. Therefore, doesn't that kind of make somewhat futile or, or worthless 
the argument over who has the gift of prophecy and who doesn't? Yes. I mean, do we have to argue, well, th this person has a gift of prophecy, this person doesn't. Isn't the better question, well, regardless of that, are what they saying, is, is what they're saying, are the, tr are the concepts they're presenting, are they true and supported by Scripture? Isn't that a better question? Yes. You see, one of the derailments that I think the devil gets us into is instead of actually taking time to assess the quality of the message and constructs and, and things coming forth, say, from a, a, a particular writer, instead he gets us to not even deal with what's written there. He attacks, well, that person that person's not a prophet. Let's talk about whether they meet the, the criterion of being a prophet or not. Well, who cares? What I want to know is if, if what they said is true. If it's supported by Scripture, if it helps me come to know God better, that's the, the question, isn't it? And because what we just all agreed, that to the degree someone speaks the truth about God, it's only because the Holy Spirit's enlightened them. And doesn't the word prophesy mean to speak for God? I think that basically God's messenger, God's spokesperson. Yeah. And so to the degree that any of us have an insight into God's character, methods, principles, wisdom, it's only because the Holy Spirit has enlightened our mind with that truth. Isn't that right? So I think these, some of these little arguments that we get, and by the way, am I just making this up or have you heard arguments along these lines? Yeah, I think some of these arguments are just a waste of time. Okay, read the last paragraph for us, to believe in Jesus. To believe in Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God is to affirm indirectly that he did not have his origin in Mary's womb. It is to affirm that his essential differentness from the rest of humanity, however much he may be like us in other ways, in short, it is to believe that he existed before his time on earth, that, quite simply, he pre-existed. He was the image of the invisible God by whom all things were created. He is before all things, and in him all things fall together. Are you uh, comfortable, are you comforted, or troubled to realize Jesus was different from you and me? Comforted or troubled? Comforted. Anybody troubled? Okay, let's let's. I see some troubles. I see some comforts. Uh, what's what's the, what's the difference? What's the concern? It says he was tempted in every way, like us, but he was different than us. How could that be? Exactly. Mm -hmm. She said, the Bible says in Hebrews 4.15 that he was tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin. If he was tempted in every way just like we are, but he's different from us, then how could he be tempted in every way like us? We can't be tempted on things that we can't be. That we can't, I mean, he was tempted to take up his divinity again, but he never did. We can't do that. That's no temptation. I mean, we, we don't have that to do. Okay, so you're, you're giving an evidence that there was something different about him. He was tempted to turn a, a stone into bread. When was the last time you were tempted with that? <laughs> okay. But the root of the temptation is the same. Right. right. The root of the temptation is the same. So you're, So maybe this is the putting it all together. He experienced temptation just like us on the same issues in the same way, but to a greater degree because he had temptations that went beyond anything we could be tempted with. If he was... us from being able to get out of our temptation. Oh, we're going to come to that as the lesson progresses. Let's, let's keep these thoughts in mind as we move on in our lesson. You had a, a comment. If he wasn't different than we were, than we are, we would have no hope of salvation. Oh, did you hear that? Wisdom. If he wasn't different than we are, at least in some form or fashion, 
then we would have no hope of salvation. And the question as we go through the class today is, by the end of today's class, we want to be able to answer why that's true. We want some evidence to be able to show why that is in fact the case. And, and we're going to do that, hopefully, as we go through. Let's go to Sunday's lesson. Let's start at the bottom of Sunday's lesson and work up. And in the bottom of Sunday's lesson, it talks about the pre-existence of Christ. And the pink section there at the bottom asks, what other aspects of our beliefs, contrary to accepted norms, customs, and ways of seeing things, ways of thinking, uh, do we have to take on raw, naked faith and nothing else? Because it's telling us that we have to take the fact that Christ was pre-existent on raw, naked faith and nothing else. Uh, Do you accept the premise that we are to believe on raw, naked faith and nothing else? No. What is raw, naked faith? (laughs) Raw, naked faith means without evidence. A declaration proclaimed, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Raw, naked faith and nothing else. Well, let's, let's just test that hypothesis for a moment. You've taught your child that they should learn to believe on raw, naked faith and nothing else. A declaration of truth is, is, is sufficient for one to believe. And so you uh, go and have your child out at the, the playground and you tell them that they are never to leave the playground with a stranger. And a stranger comes up while you're not uh, watching closely and says uh, to your child, I am a prophet of God and he has sent me here on a special mission to take you with me. Should your child go on raw, naked faith alone? No. Well, why not? We're to believe in raw, naked faith, aren't we? No. Hmm. No, you see the dangers of raw, naked faith? Somebody coming along purporting to be from God? Does the Bible teach that an angel of light is going to come purporting to be from God? Did an angel of light, so called light, come to Christ presenting himself as from heaven, claiming certain presentations? Should Christ have just believed on raw, naked faith? No, Christ thought through. He brought the scriptures to bear, didn't he? He gives us a model. What if um, a stranger comes up to you in the mall and then taps you on the shoulder and says, uh, give me the keys to your car and the keys to your house. You can trust me. Yeah. <laughs> Raw naked faith. Well, sure. Here, have the keys. Would you do that? No, no you wouldn't. If you can't trust, think about this, if you can't trust your your car and your house to somebody on raw naked faith. How could you trust the keys of your life to somebody on raw naked faith? You see? It's foolishness. Yes? If we were just to take everything on raw naked faith, God would not have given us or needed to give us the power of choice. We would have been the robots that he would have just told us what to do and we would have done it. Exactly. It's coming over here. I'm just curious. Um, it's interesting you mentioned choice because you know, you've got to yield the choice sometimes. But I was thinking of the opposite the origination of uh, the raw naked faith the child needs to have in the parent to not go with really anything because the parent set the first precedent. Okay, okay. Let's, let's in fact, pick that up a little bit. Um, if you have a close family member, like maybe a parent or, or a spouse, uh, that you have experienced for years as loving and caring and, and trustworthy uh, through your years of experience, if you come home and that, say, your spouse uh, has gone out and, and got a present for you and wrapped it up and put it uh, away, maybe in the closet somewhere, and they tell you, there's a present for you in, in the closet I got for you today, would you go to get that present? Yes. Sure. Do you have any evidence of the present? 
just in the past. Of the present. Any, no. any s- scientific evidence of that present before you get there? No. 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 The parent or the spouse. Uh, you go based on faith or trust, right? Or confidence in the one who told you. Now, is your trust or confidence in the person who told you without evidence? No. 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 You have all this lifetime experience with this person who has demonstrated over time their reliability, their trustworthiness. See, the presence in our heavenly closet, eternal life, mansions in heaven, crowns of glory, all these things we have no proof or evidence for. But do we have evidence of God's existence and His trustworthiness? Yes. yes, our faith is not in the presence. Our faith is in the one who's promised the presence. Do you see the difference? And so this raw, naked faith business is actually a subtle distortion that says that we should have our faith in God without evidence. No, 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 no. Why do you think he went to all this trouble to demonstrate how trustworthy he is? Well, let's ask the question. Don't let me just tell you. Let's look. What evidence is there that God exists? Creation. Nature. Nature. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, that God's eternal power and divine nature have been seen through what he has made so that men are without excuse. We, can we look into nature and see evidences of God? Sure. The natural laws. The natural laws that he created. Yes, yes, another hand. What he creates is so great. I've, I've always told people that you know everything mankind's created up to this point it seems pretty phenomenal. You still really can't create a blade of grass. It's pretty much a miracle. And That's there's right. so much beyond that. Yes, yes. The fact that I exist gives evidence that God exists. Exactly, this, this whole creation. I like the, uh, the natural laws. That's, a, that's another powerful one we won't go into today, but the, the law of love. You've, you've, we've talked about this numerous times, this principle of other-centered giving that all life is, is predicated upon. Over here. Yes. So the hand of God in our lives individually. So we have individual evidences of, as we open our hearts to God, He intervenes or intercedes, and we can see that as evidence of His care. How about Bible prophecy? Yeah. I mean, one of the powerful things to me is that somebody could know the future so accurately. Look at those prophecies of, of Daniel that could predict the rise and falls of nations so accurately. That's pretty powerful evidence to me as well. Uh, the transformation of lives. Have you ever known someone who was in rebellion, uh, in, in, say, living a wicked way, and they've come to know God and they've had a complete transformation? That's powerful evidence as well. I mean, there's evidences all around us. One of the, one of the principles... You know, the, the agnostics and atheists suggest that survival of the fittest is the law upon which, uh, and the principle upon which life is evolved over millennia and billions of years. That's what they suggest. They suggest there is no God, and since there is no God, there is no moral law. True? Because the moral law comes from God. Well, yeah, I'm a pretty big guy, six foot four. 200 pounds, if I go up to one of these guys and knock him over the head and take his wife to my house and have my way, uh, he shouldn't complain to the authority, should he? I mean, after all, survival of the fittest gives me that right, doesn't it? He should rejoice. He should rejoice because the survival of the fittest principle is being acted out. You see? What would give him a right to complain that something wrong has just happened? The moral law. But he denies there's a moral law. There's no wrong that's been done to you because there is no moral law in the universe that you live in. Wow. Do you see their own practice and how they live and what they expect and how they expect you to treat them is all based on a law that emanates from God. And they all live it and they all want it. And if you try to step across the line and take something from them, they'll be angry at you. But you say, why? I'm bigger and stronger. That's survival of the fittest. You should be rejoicing. 
You see, it doesn't make sense, does it? There's lots of evidences for the existence of God. But interestingly enough, in Psalms 19.7, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Why is this so important? Because there are these little subtle distortions we talked about in our last week's lesson that God's law requires payment, death. But it says in Psalms 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. It's the law of love. It's the law that regenerates. It's the law that heals. It's the law that recreates. It's the law that brings forth life. Life emanates from God. God is not the source of death. It is actually when you step out in harmony from this law that death ensues. And thus Paul talks about in the New Testament, he talks about in the New Testament two laws. He says, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. death. Notice that sin and death are the principles here together. Not the law of God. And so when you hear preachers talk about that the law of God is what requires death. No, 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 no. No. The law of God does not require death. The law of God revives the soul. The life of Christ reveals the truth about God's character of love in contrast to that antagonistic principle of selfishness known as survival of the fittest, which wins us back to trust. Now, the pre-existence of Christ meaning his existence before being born in a wo- as a woman. If he did not exist prior to coming in human form, and he's merely part of this creation, in other words, uh, he was basically born like you and I, if that was the case, he would have been unable to save us. And the question is, why? Why would he have been unable to save us if he did not exist prior to coming here? Because he wouldn't have been the exact reflection of God. Okay, she's suggesting as, as a possibility for us to discuss that he he would not have been able to reveal exactly what God is like and if we didn't reveal exactly what God is like then the lies told about God would not have been dealt with and let's let's give some biblical evidence for that it says in Hebrews 2.14 that Christ took upon himself human flesh that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death that is the devil the devil holds the power of death what is that power John 17.3 this is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ and now ascent. So do the math with me. Life eternal equals knowing God. Eternal death equals not knowing God. Right? Everybody with me? So Satan's power is the lies, he's the father of lies, that he tells about God that we believe that keep us from knowing him. So Christ came that by his death he might destroy him who holds that power. So, your point, he came to reveal the truth about God, which destroys the lives of Satan, which wins us back to trust. Key point. But is that all? Yes? I just want to make one comment as to what was said. It was his death that revealed that point, but his life, actually, it was not Christ revealing the character of God. It was God in him revealing his character. Because when the apostles asked Christ, to show them the Father, he said, wait a minute, I didn't raise the dead, I didn't feed the 5,000, I didn't heal the lepers, it was my Father in me, he did the works, he's the one that's been teaching you, because Christ was a vessel, he had given himself to his Father, completely, and he said, if you understand this principle, my Father will do the same in you, as he's done in me. Very well stated, absolutely, and Christ says, if you see me, you've seen the Father. He says, the words I've spoken, they're not my words. They're the words of the Father. Absolutely. I can do nothing of myself. 
Everything I do is from the Father. In 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in the Son, reconciling the world to Himself. So, exactly right. So we see in Christ the Father living. As one person puts it, Jesus Christ is the Father's thoughts made audible and visible. That's a great statement, yes. That's why we are saved through His life, Romans 5, verse 10. So, so we, we're all on board that he had to reveal the truth for the purpose of winning us back to trust, right? Imagine you have a, a physical illness of some kind. It's terminal. And there's a doctor who claims to have a cure, but that doctor is somebody who has been cruel to you, beaten you, molested you, done all types of horrible things to you as a kid. Would you trust that doctor to, to treat you? No. No. You see, you have to want to trust in order for you. And let's say the doctor's a remedy. If you don't trust him, you're not going to take the remedy, are you? No. So trust has to be there in order to take the remedy. However, let's say you have a loving father who's a physician and you're sick with this terminal state. And you do trust your father, but he has no remedy. Will your trust alone in a being result in your getting well if there's no remedy? No. We need both. So clearly, step one in Christ's mission was to come and restore trust. Yes. With this kind of explanation of the mechanics of salvation, what was the purpose of Gethsemane? Uh, excellent question. What was going on in Gethsemane? And, and we're coming to it right now. In fact, let's, let's, go, let's go right into it. Because the second question, so step one, we must be drawn back to God. Romans 2, 4, it says the kindness of God leads us to repentance. So the truth, the kindness of God's character wins us. Um, and in fact I'm going to read you a statement I'm going to get to your question I just want to finish up this part of it and we're going to go right to it it says one of the founders of our church stated this following it's in um, Signs of the Times December 30, 1889 it says the greatest gift that God could bestow upon men was bestowed in the gift of his beloved son the apostle says quote he that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us how will he not also freely give us all things end quote that's Romans 8, 31, 32 uh, there was nothing held in reserve no second probation will ever be provided. If the unspeakable gift of God does not lead men to repentance, there is nothing that ever will move, his, move the heart. There is no power held in reserve to act upon his mind and arouse his sensibilities. The whole character of God was revealed in his Son. The whole range of the possibilities of heaven is displayed for the acceptance of men and the Son of the Infinite One. The way for man's return to God in heaven has no barriers. Listen, to that, no barriers for our return. The matchless depths of the Savior's love have been demonstrated, and if this manifestation of God's love for His children, for the children of men, does not prevail to draw men to Himself, there is nothing that ever will. Okay? So the truth about God's character draws us back. But, what does the law require once we're drawn back to God? Once we're drawn, we trust Him. In order to have eternal life, we, we just read that the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. The law has certain requirements. What does it require? And how does Christ's mission in Gethsemane and, and at the cross, how does it achieve that? And let's take some biblical evidence. What will the law require of us to live with God forever? John 3, 3. Talking to Nicodemus, and you know this when you don't have to look it up. I declare to you the truth, and no one can see this, the kingdom of God unless he is born again. born again. So what is Jesus saying as a requirement here? There has to be a, a regeneration, a transformation, a renewal of heart and mind. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27 says, God speaking, I will give you a new heart 
and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Notice who is the active agent here. Who is doing this? Who is the regenerative source? Who is the healer? So, people often stumble over the question, are you a perfectionist? Do we have to be perfect? Well, if you had cancer and you went to the doctor, would you say to the doctor, you know, I only want to be 75% healed. <laughs> now, only heal me 80%. Or do you want to be perfectly healed? You see, the who, and who's the pressure on? Is the pressure on you, the patient, to heal yourself? Or is the pressure on the doctor to heal you? Okay? Well, this is what it says here in Ezekiel. He will put the law in our heart. He will move us to live in this way. He will regenerate us. The work is not our work to heal ourselves. Okay? And then Hebrews 8.10, this is the new covenant, I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. God is the one doing this, but will he write his law in our hearts? Will he come in and transform? Will he regenerate? Will he recreate if we don't trust him? If we don't freely invite him in? If we don't cooperate and open the heart to him? So you see the key we've already talked about, the truth had to be revealed to win us back to trust first. Still back to the next question. So what is needed besides trust? Well, I'm going to read you some passages here. This is out of uh, uh, Desire of Ages 761, 762. Just check the flow of what's happening here in this great controversy in, in, our, in our characters and so forth. It says, in the opening of the great controversy, Satan had declared that the law of God could not be obeyed. Which law? Law of love. N- notice. Is it the Ten Commandments, the rules that were... No, those were given later. They were given thousands of years after this rebellion started in heaven. It was the law of love, the principle of beneficence, the principle of giving. that could not be obeyed. That justice was inconsistent with mercy, and that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. If you hear presentations, if you hear preachers talking about God in order to be just must punish sin, every sin has to be punished, that's Satan's argument. That's what Satan argued in the beginning. Every sin must be punished, urge Satan. And if God should remit the punishment of sin, he would not be a God of truth and justice. And if you read, and I read actually on a very prestigious church website this morning, that God's um, very, very, very prestigious. Some might say the, the website that sets the standard for our doctrines. I won't tell you what that website is, though. <laughs> anyway, it, uh, in that website, talked about this very thing. It said that God, in order to be just, he's not only loving, the other, it said this phrase, the other side of the coin of God's love is his justice, and justice requires that he punish sin. Wait a minute, that's Satan's argument. If every sin, every sin must be punished or Satan, and should God remit the punishment of the sin, he would not be the God of truth and justice. When then broke the law of God and defied his will, Satan exalted. It was proved, Satan declared, that the law could not be obeyed and man could not be forgiven. But he, because he, after his rebellion, had been banished from heaven, Satan claimed that the human race must forever be shut out of God's favor. God could not be just, he urged, and yet show mercy to the sinner. But even as a Sinner, man was in a different position than that of Satan. Lucifer in heaven had sinned in the light of God's glory. Timus, no other created being, was given a revelation of God's love, understanding the character of God, knowing his goodness. Satan chose to follow his own selfish, independent will. This choice was final. There was nothing more God could do to save him. But man was deceived. His mind was darkened by Satan's sophistry. The height and the depth of the love of God he did not know. For him there was hope 
in the knowledge. What, for him there was hope in a, in a payment to appease the angry wrath of God who now had to be just and punish sin? No. For him there was hope in the knowledge of God's love. By beholding his character, he might be drawn back to God. And notice the difference. It's powerful stuff. Through Jesus, God's mercy was manifested to men, but mercy does not set aside justice. I want you to see what justice is. The law reveals the attributes of God's character. And what are the attributes of God's character? Love. So not a jot or tittle of it could be changed. Why? Because we don't want God to be changed from a God of love who cares and would give himself and sacrifice himself and do everything in our interest. We don't want him to be changed to a God like Satan who would act selfishly and exploit and abuse his creation, do we? No, we don't want the law to change because the law is on our side. God is on our side to heal and restore. Not a jot or tittle of it could be changed to meet man in his fallen condition. God did not change his law, but he sacrificed himself in Christ for man's redemption. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Now listen to, the law. listen to this. The law requires... Now have you ever heard the law requires payment? law requires appeasement. The law requires a death. No. Here's what, it, here's what she says. The law requires righteousness. A righteous life. A perfect character. And this man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. But Christ, coming to earth as man, lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. These he offers as free gift to all who will receive them. His life stands for the life of men. Thus they have remissions of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Notice that. Our remission of sins passed are through what? God's forbearance. What's it say in uh, 1 Corinthians 13? Love keeps no record of wrongs. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God did not keep account of their sins. Okay? The Bible is clear that this is a biblical principle. God isn't keeping track of this stuff. More than this, Christ imbues men with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine character, a goodly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. Thus, the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ, and God can be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. Do you see the difference? It's an actual regenerating, recreating process. Let's talk about the question of Gethsemane. Let's talk about this unique being. Christ is a unique being in all creation history. Follow this through with me. Christ is a unique being in all creation history. Adam was formed out of the dust of the ground. God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. He became a perfect, sinless, living being. And Eve was taken from his side, another perfect, sinless being. We're, we're all together so far. Everyone in this room, how many of you were formed out of the dust of the ground? How many of you had God breathe into your nostrils the breath of life and you became a perfect, sinless being? No, that's not us. We are, says in Psalms 51, we are born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We have sinful mother and sinful father, born in sin, conceived in iniquity. Christ Jesus now, the human being, God-man, Christ Jesus. He was not formed out of the dust of the ground, like Adam. He wasn't taken from another sinless being's side, like Eve. He didn't have sinful parents. He was a unique being in all creation history. He was born of a woman under law, the law of sin and death, Galatians chapter 4, 4. So he had a sinful mother. But his father was God himself. So Christ is born into the world with humanity, subject to like passions as we are, tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. But his heart and mind is in full connection with the father, with a perfect character of love. Unlike our heart and mind when we come into the world. And so in Christ Jesus, the two antagonistic principles at war in this universe, God's character of love, which he summed up when he said, when Christ summed up when he said, greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend. Which means, I love you so much, I'll do whatever I have to for you. Including if it comes down, down to it, I'll give my life that you might live. At war with Satan's principle of survival of the fittest, which says, I love myself so much, I'll do whatever I have to to promote myself. Including if it comes down to it, kill you that I might live. Give my life that you might live, kill you that I might live. 
These are the two principles at war on this planet. We are born infected with the principle of selfishness, survival of the fittest. And thus in Christ we see them, let's go to the biblical evidence, Hebrews 4.15, he was tempted in every way just like we are yet without sin. James chapter 1, starting in verse 13, it says, No one should say God tempts, because God cannot be tempted by evil. So could divinity experience temptation? No. no. So he had to take upon himself humanity to experience what Hebrews said he would experience, temptation every way like, like we are. And what humanity did he take? Well, it says in James, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one of us are tempted when we're drug away and enticed by our own evil desires. Well, the Bible says he was tempted in every way, just like we are. Are we, have you ever been tempted from inside yourself? Does that mean Christ had a humanity capable of experiencing a pull to act in self-interest, act in survival of the fittest, act to save self, go to Gethsemane? Well, let's go to, the, let's go to the wilderness first. Let's go to the wilderness first. If you are the Son of God, turn this rock into bread and save yourself. Give yourself something to eat. If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down off the temp table. Exalt yourself and promote yourself. If you're the Son of God, bow down to me and worship me and avoid all this trouble. I'll give you the earth. Save yourself. Then in Gethsemane, those are external temptations to him, but playing on that principle. In Gethsemane, though, did Christ, you answer the questions, I'll ask the questions. Did Christ experience powerful feelings in Gethsemane? Yes. And if he followed the feelings, where would the feelings have led him? Self-preservation. Self-preservation. It would have, he was tempted by his own feelings, his human feelings, to act in a way to save self. But every time that temptation came, that's how we're tempted, isn't it? With fear, with selfishness, we experience those pulls. But notice, temptation is not sin. Okay? And every time the temptation came, Christ confronted that temptation with, not my will be done, but thy will be done. No one can take my life, I will give it freely. And so in Christ, and then at the cross, when they take him to the cross, did you hear, did you hear the people throw it at him? Sorry. Others he saved. Himself he cannot save. Save yourself and believe in you. Save yourself. Save yourself. Over and over again, he's re- repeatedly tempted with the temptation to save self. And each time the temptation comes, what does he do? He overcomes the self-centered, selfish temptation with, give myself, give myself, give myself. No one can take my life. I will give it freely. You understand, they could not take the life of the Creator on the cross. He wasn't powerless and helpless like the two thieves up there. Christ had the power, not like I dream a genie, to, to blink her eyes or bewitch to twinkle her nose and make something happen. He could have, with a thought, be gone and wiped them out. What does it say about God that on the cross, when His creatures are abusing Him, spitting Him on Him, beating Him, crucifying Him, that He chooses to exercise authority over himself in governance of his own powers to give his creatures the freedom to do that. Do you think questions were answered in the universe at the cross about God's abuse of power? Do you think questions were answered about the trustworthiness of Christ? And do you think in his humanity, notice what he did, in his human divine connection, he rewrote restored, if you want, regenerated, any word you want to use, perfect, godly love, the template of God's character, and purge that infection to tempt self. Justice and mercy kissed. Yes, and thus he raises on the third day, and now he is that template, and he says to his disciples, it is good for you that I leave. Why is it good that I leave? So I can send the and the Holy Spirit will right. Right. Take what is mine, 
and make it known to you. What is it that he now has? He has developed perfect character. And the Holy Spirit takes that perfect character of Christ and reproduces it in us. He takes the love of Christ and restores it in us, Romans chapter 5, 5. He takes the mind of Christ and restores it in us. The, the new covenant experience, I'll write my law on your heart and mind. It's all coming from Christ. The Holy, he, Christ said, the Holy Spirit will not speak on his own. He will speak what he hears. Boy, who is he hearing it from? Christ. Christ is the member of the Godhead directing in our, our initial creation, but also the member of the Godhead directing in the whole plan of salvation to restore and regenerate. Does that answer your question about Gethsemane? Yes. <laughs> okay, you see what's happening there. It's a literal, actual, regenerative victory that occurs. Yes? I just, I'd like to make one comment to tie this into what um, the sister said across from me about the divinity and humanity being together as one and how important is that that Christ was, was not just a man. By the union of the divinity in Christ as a man, he opened up the way for the divinity to be in you and I. And now we're told by John, First John, that we are the sons of God. Because of what Christ did, because God gave his son to be a man, not just for 33 and a half years, but for eternity, to be one of us, we are now children of the Most High God. And that union that he's placed in his son, by the two of them being one, is a man. He offers to you and I that we might be one with God. That is, His Spirit, His character, in union with our spirit and our character, are made one. We truly become sons and daughters of God. And let's, let's expand that. Uh, Peter tells us that we can become partakers of the divine, the divine nature. Okay, And the divine nature is the nature of? Well, it's the nature of God, sir, but, but the, the, the description is? Love. love. It's the nature of love. And the two antagonistic principles are the nature, love versus selfishness. And so God, when we have that union with him, we come back to see the evidences revealed in Christ, that God is our friend, he's on our side, he's always been on our side. And we come back to say, okay, I invite you in. Then the Holy Spirit comes with the regenerative power, taking what is Christ, restoring that love in our hearts, and we will be placed in positions where we will have opportunities to make choices. I can promise you, when you are moving in a loving direction, that the devil will be there to flame your fears. He will play on you to act in selfish ways, to act in survival the fittest principle ways. And we have the option at that point to say, do I, the just shall live by faith or trust. Do I trust the outcome to God in my life in His hands or do I need to act in ways to protect self? So, you're running short on your finances this month and you have the opportunity and survival of fittest principle kicks in. You have fear. You have anxiety. You have worry. Will, will my car get repossessed? Will, my, will, will I get evicted from my apartment? Hey, I need a few extra dollars and that survival of the fittest principle tempts up and says, yeah, I could cheat on my taxes. See, we have temptation, right? Cheat on my taxes. Uh, and I can get that money. That's an option. We have to make a decision, don't we? It's our choice. Who's going to make that decision for you? Nobody. Nobody. You're going to have to make that decision. But you can say, wait a minute. I don't want to be a taker. I don't want to be a person who's dominated by fear and insecurity. I want to be somebody who has stepped back into the circle of love, the circle of giving, the circle of beneficence that the universe operates on. And so, 
I've come to know Christ well enough that I can trust him with my future, even though I can't see it. And so I'm going to choose not to cheat on my taxes, knowing that all things will work together for good. Now, maybe I, maybe I don't get uh, bailed out this month. Maybe I, I do have to be evicted out of my apartment. I don't know what the exact circumstances will be, but I can tell you whatever they turn out to be, they will be exactly what you would have chosen if you were sitting on God's throne, seeing the end from the beginning, if you trust God. I want to say that again. If God takes you to heaven and allows you to sit on his throne so you can see the course of your life spread out before you, if you trust him, if you trust him, you would choose nothing different for how things unfold than he is choosing for you. The only variances that come along that line and that timeline is when we step out of that trust relationship and begin choosing things for ourselves. That's when the problems come. That's when the difficulties come. And I can tell you experience from my own life, 19... 83, I graduated from Southern with an associate degree in nursing and before I went on to med school. And I uh, went and got a job at a hospital here in town. And about six, seven, eight months, eight months into that job, I got fired. I had never been fired from a job in my life. I'd been working since I was 14. It's like, this was, well, to my ego, my ego didn't, self did not like this. I was hurting. I became frustrated. I cried out to the Lord, Lord, why did you let this happen to me? Uh, you know, I, I, I go to church regularly. I pay my tithe. Uh, uh, you know, you're, not, you're, not, you're not protecting me. What's the deal here? And, uh, well, as you know, there's always a need for nurses. So within less than a week, I was hired at a different hospital. And when I started working there, within, a couple, like within two weeks, I met a person who became a very good friend of mine. And that person happened to be in pre-med at UTC. And... She invited me, said, well, why don't you come and go pre-med with me? And I said, well, you know, I've always wanted to be a doctor. I just didn't really get around to the right time. And because of her influence, I went back to school, and I got my bachelor's degree and pre-med and went to med school, and my whole life changed. And I look back on that and go, thank you, God. I got fired from that job. I needed that little nudge from this friend, and my life was so much better for it. You see, and if I would have actually trusted God for those couple of weeks, I would have kept myself from some sleepless and restless nights because I would have been able to say, you know, if I was sitting on God's throne overseeing that job, I would have fired me too <laughs> because it was working out for my best interest. These are the type of examples that we can, we can count on God. And sometimes it's not always in our uh, specific best interest. Sometimes God allows us to go through things because of some need on his part. In the case of Job. Job, if you remember the situation there in the book of Job, Go back through the genealogies of Christ and you end up going back, the son of Seth, the son of God, excuse me, the son of Adam, the son of God. And it says in the first chapter of Job, it says all the sons of God had come to gather before him. Well, this, you can make the case. These are the representative heads of all the intelligent, unfallen worlds. The first beings created on all those worlds, the representative heads, the sons of God have come to present themselves before him. And it says, very next thing, Lucifer came or Satan came from walking to and fro on the earth. Satan presents, hey, I'm here. And God says, what are you doing here? Well, I'm, I'm here representing earth. You've got all the, you're calling your heavenly council. You've got all the representative heads from all the intelligent planets throughout all immensity. I am here as earth's rightful ruler. And God says, wait, 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 wait. Not so fast. Um, have you seen Job down there? He's perfect and righteous in all his ways, and he does not recognize you as his leader. He recognizes me as his leader. You don't represent earth. Be gone, be gone, be gone. And Lucifer says, or Satan says, 
He only pretends to. Hey, all you representative heads up here, uh, God wants you to believe that, that Job's on his side and, and he wants him to represent him. No, no, no. Job's still on my side. I'm the right ruler here. Uh, he's only pretending to be on God's side because God's got deeper pockets than I do and he can pay better than I can. And if he wouldn't pay him so well, then, then you, know, you would really see that Job truly is on my side. And God says, okay, he's in your hands. He's in your hands. Do with him what you will, just don't kill him. And now what do we see? Do you notice that God didn't restrict Satan to harmful actions? Uh, God didn't say, you can go down there and harm him, but you can't do anything else. He said, he's in your hands, you just can't kill him. Which means that Satan could have gone down and had all the Amalekites and everybody around proclaim him king and rule over and be getting lots more wealth and lots more good things. Satan could have done that. He was in his hands. But instead, Satan begins to destroy, revealing his character. Showing what, where, where destruction actually comes from. And as you progress through, the, the friends arrive, and the friends sit and mourn with him, and the friends begin to say, Job, you've got to repent. You're an awful sinner, because we know that if you were a man of God, and you were doing right, that you wouldn't have all these bad things happening. And today we see a theology being taught that if you're right with God, you're healthy and wealthy. And if you've got problems in your life, and you've got sickness, and, and you've got financial problems, well, it's only happening because you're obviously a sinner, and you've got some sin in your life you need to get rid of. Same arguments Job's friends gave. And at the end of the book of Job, Job's friends are rebuked by God. And God says to Job, you have said of me what is right. And you see, here's the big issue. If Satan, see, angelic beings and these other created beings, they can't read the secrets of your heart and mind. If they could have, none of them would have been deceived by Satan in the first place. They would have been able to see right through Lucifer and see that he was lying. But they couldn't. So if he gets Job to curse God, he looks to all those sons of the morning, all those sons of God, and says, See, I told you, God is wrong about Job, and he's wrong about me. You can't trust what God says. And Job was such a friend of God that God could call him to the witness stand of the whole universe to say of God what is right. And sometimes, sometimes, when we're on that perspective, when things are going on in our life, if we could see from godly perspective, and God asked can I call you to the witness stand? Would you be willing to let me put you on the witness stand to say of me what is right? You might find yourself in a place of high pressure. You might find yourself in a place of difficult circumstances. Would you be willing to do that to help set minds right? You see? So there's sometimes reasons these things happen. Okay, Monday's lesson. Did Jesus know he was pre-existent is the question. And what evidence do we have that Jesus knew he was pre-existent? talked about returning to his father's throne. Okay. In his prayer in the upper room, he said, the glory I had with you before that I came to glorify me now. Okay, so let's, let's, let's read a couple of those. Uh, John 17, the one you're referring to, John 17, verses 5 through 8, and verse 24 says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you've given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. So did Christ have a perception that he existed before? Yeah, I think he clearly knew that. There are other places when he talks about, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. 
Okay, I'm the one that came down from heaven. He knew he came down from heaven. What was the one you gave last, the first lesson? Before Abraham was, I am? Yeah. There's another one, exactly. And he talked to Nicodemus also. He said, uh, no man can uh, has seen God except one that was came from God. Came forth from God. Exactly. Exactly. And by the way, um, I talked a moment ago about uh, the angelic host and about Christ on the cross and, and how he did not use his power to protect himself, but instead surrendered his power and allowed his creatures to kill him. Do you notice that in the Revelation story, after we look in Revelation, every time the heavenly hosts now look into heaven, what do we see? We see them saying, worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. He's worthy to have all the power because he's demonstrated he's safe with the power. You see, you've heard that statement, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, that's proven false in the life of Christ, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. He also said, Father, forgive you. They don't know what they do. They have a very forgiving heart. And then they only took cross being that forgiving. Your faith walk on and forever. I do anything. And so he forgave them. Does that mean that uh, we've seen the Father's attitude in that? Have you seen me? You've seen the Father. So was the Father forgiving even before the death of Christ? Did the Father need Christ's blood payment in order for him to forgive? Have you heard that? Where does that come from? Satan. Well, certainly. It comes from Satan. No question. Okay, no question about that. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. What Bible text is sometimes used... Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Now, I've explained it. Who in the class would like to explain that for us? Well, some some translations do say, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. That's right. That's, I can see how that can be misinterpreted easily. Okay. And that's right, because the language... Uh, when you When you think about the words in English, are there words we have that have multiple meanings? Yes. Yeah, lots of words. So when you, when somebody is translating what you're saying into another language, uh, don't they have to select as a translator? Well, which meaning do I need to pick for the word that you just used? Isn't that right? And so, depending on the, the lenses that you have on when you read the text, if you read that the problem is a legal problem and it requires legal pardon and forgiveness, then you read that and you put in there the word forgiveness. But let's think it through. Was God able in his heart as the sovereign of the universe, from his character, to be forgiving of heart and extend forgiveness to whomever he so chooses. Was he able? He had no other... Does God's extension of forgiveness equal healing, restoration, and, and, and transformation of sinners? No. 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 So you have to ask, without the shedding of blood, God wasn't able to be forgiving? God couldn't forgive? Or without the shedding of blood, God couldn't heal and restore? So you think about somebody who's got cancer. And if they got cancer, you want the doctor to treat them in such a way that the cancer goes into remission. And when the cancer goes into remission, the cancerous cells remit back to their original precancerous healthy state. So without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Sinfulness, our sinful hearts and minds and characters could not remit back to God's original design that he created mankind and Adam to be. Now, you think it through. Don't, don't let me ever tell you what to think. Think it through and look at the two options and, and which is more sensible, reasonable, and consistent with Scripture. God couldn't extend forgiveness or God couldn't restore us back into his original design without Christ's mission that we talked about earlier where Christ restored love and overcame that temptation to 
to act in self-interest. You have to understand also what the blood signifies. Christ said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. Unless we become cannibals, we can't enter heaven. (laughs) That's not what that means, is it? Unless you, well, what's the blood? So the question, the blood. The life is in the blood. Unless we take into our hearts and minds and our characters the character and life of Christ. We can't have any part. It's the same teaching all the way through Scripture. Unless you have a new heart, right spirit, circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, all the same. All the same. Robes of righteousness, all the same. If, if it, uh, you know, going under the pretext that it was God that killed Christ on the cross, why would Jesus have to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do? And if the payment was being made, why would we be asking, hey, the payment's now made, let them off the hook? Or it should be thank them for seeing your plan through. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, that's a good point. Good point. Um, this is a quote from George MacDonald, who was a uh, non-Adventist pastor in the 19th century. It says, What is the deepest in God? His power? No, for power could not make him what we mean when we say God. A being whose essence was only power would be such a negation of the divine that no righteous worship could be offered him. His service would be only fear. Do you recognize that? And thus the Bible says in Zechariah, not by might nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works, or by the Spirit, says the Lord. And the Spirit is the Spirit of truth and love. And you can't persuade people by intimidating and coercive tactics. And there's some, there's some people in here that are dating. Try to persuade the one you're dating to love you with coercive, threatening, domineering, and controlling tactics and see what happens. They will not love you. They will leave you. It's a guarantee because it's a violation of one of the laws that the universe is created to operate upon, the law of liberty, the law of freedom. And love can only exist in an atmosphere of freedom. And in our relationships, when we try to coerce pressure, there's, there's ways to do it overtly, like the man who beats his wife. There's the ways to do it subtly, like the person who sends the message, well, if you don't do what I want... Uh, then I might be interested in somebody else. Well, if you don't do what I want, then I won't... I, well, I thought you cared about me. I thought you loved me. Oh, well, I guess I'll just have to find somebody else who does. Okay, those little coercive statements that try to control. This isn't love. And it will destroy relationships because love can't exist now. True love gives freedom and respect and autonomy and support. Yes? In that particular case, in those kind of cases, what do you do about ignorance and deceit? Because I, I see so many times in the world where... Um, someone cloaks, cloaks deceit and things like that in love. And, you know, I see a lot of people sometimes trap. Oh, no. Uh, and ignorance isn't a sin. I like this discussion because basically a lot of it has to do with the fact that ignorance is not a sin. Yeah, uh, violations of the law, whether purposeful or ignorant, reap the same consequence. I'll give you an example. Uh, if you take your spouse up to the top of this building and you pick her up and you... or if you're the other way around, pick him up, and uh, throw your spouse off the building. Uh, Throw your spouse off the building, purposely. We all know what the consequence will be. If you're up there working, re-roofing with your spouse, and you you bend over and accidentally bump your spouse off the building, will there be a different consequence? No. No. The consequence is the same. If you have been told uh, that cigarette smoke is good for your lungs, 
And, and actually, they were told this back in the 40s and 50s. Uh, remember the Marlboro Man? Okay. Smoking will make you healthy. Make you virile. Okay. And a lot of people ignorantly believed it. Did their ignorance protect them from the consequence? And so there's a principle here. And the principle is, there's two principles. One is the principle of freedom. We are all free by God to believe whatever we choose to believe. We are all free to believe whatever we choose to believe. But don't mistake that freedom, don't mistake that freedom for the idea that all beliefs are equally healthy or equally valuable. They're not. You're free to believe whatever you want, but not all beliefs result in the same outcomes or consequences. And I actually had a patient who uh, believed that smoking helped her lungs. Even though she's on two liters of oxygen every night at bedtime, she can't sleep without her oxygen. And I made some comment about that. And she's, oh no, it helps me breathe. Well, she's free to believe that, isn't she? But is that belief as beneficial as believing that cigarettes are destroying her lungs? You see? So... Uh, the principle I think you, you bring up is true. Even if we do it ignorantly, if we're in a relationship where we don't intend to harm, but we have so much personal insecurity, we're so afraid for whether we'll be accepted, we'll be, we'll be loved or not, that we reach out to control because we need that person to be there for us. We need that person to value us. We need that person. We're constantly controlling and manipulating. It will still destroy love and the relationship will fracture, even if it's done ignorantly. Love can't exist in an atmosphere without freedom. Uh, well, I guess that's, that's all for today. So, any closing questions or comments? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are exactly as Jesus has shown you to be, that you value our freedom, our individuality, that you came in the form of your Son, linking our defective and terminal humanity with your perfect and righteous divinity, thus healing, restoring, regenerating in your Son this race back to your original ideal. We now have the option and we choose to open our heart to be linked with you through your Holy Spirit that through the Spirit there will be a download of righteousness a download of of holiness into our hearts and minds a download of your love that we will be changed and transformed to be like you in this world we pray in your holy name Amen